you know, there's been a lot of things happen through this pandemic that I've learned to say, thank you, COVID. You know, like one of the things that I've seen is that families are actually closer, right? I mean, parents are working out of the home, they're spending more time with their children, they're doing things together. And, and actually we read, you know, if you believe any study, right? It's like, actually there's, there's more contentment within families. And I know it sometimes it causes more stress also, but there's a blessing in this. And one of the things that's happened is people are actually doing things together. And one of the things that we did and, and, and haven't done so much lately, but in the midst of COVID is we, we rediscovered puzzles. I don't know if you guys are into puzzles or whatever, but we used to love to do puzzles with our kids. Our kids love doing puzzles and we rediscovered puzzles. But what the other thing we discovered is, well, so did a whole lot of other people because you couldn't find any really good puzzles, right? I mean, they were out. You had to really search to find puzzles. And so we found puzzles, and, and not just like, you know, these wimpy little 200-piece puzzles. I'm talking like 1,000, 2,000-piece puzzles, things that take you weeks to construct, right? And, and things that you invest time in. And it was a blast to sit around a table with my wife and, and talk and, and, and share a bottle of wine and, and just kind of just reconnect and, and over these big puzzles. We did that for weeks, right? But there's, there's this anxiety when you open up a box full of all of these pieces, right? There's an, and maybe you feel it, maybe I'm just alone, but it's, a, it's the anxiety of like, it's like I pray that all the pieces are in the box, right? It's, it's like, if I go through the trouble of weeks of putting this thing together and I get to 1,999 and there's no 2,000th piece in this puzzle, I'm not gonna be happy. It's not gonna be what I expected it to be and it's not gonna be a good experience. And, and that happened to us, right? <laughs> Of course it happened to us, right? And, and I'm sitting there, and we're getting, I'm like, I'm looking all over. I'm like, I look at Terry, and I'm like, did you lose it? Right? Because <laughs> it's her fault, right? I mean, you know, I, I've learned so much in 37 years of marriage. So it's like, well, where's it at? And then it's like, then you start to blame the puzzle maker, right? Or the people who pack the puzzle, right? It's like, come on, guys. You know, this is a cruel joke. But then what happened was about a week later, Terry found the piece. And it was on a bench. We have this bench on the side of our table. It has these slots in it. And that's usually where I sat. But anyway, there was a piece <laughs> down in the slot of the bench. And there it was. And it was like, yes, the puzzle is finished. And we could just relax and like have another bottle of wine and just say, this is awesome. <laughs> right? And it's just so great at like that. And, and what we've been doing over these last couple of weeks is actually putting together this puzzle. Right, and we've said at the very beginning, this is a three-piece puzzle, not a two-piece puzzle, and it's not really complete until we've put all three pieces together. But I want to share something with you this morning. It's really bigger than a three-piece puzzle. All right, this this puzzle is much more than just a couple of pieces. All right, it, it, it's simple at its core. I think this these are the very these are very three important pieces of the puzzle, but it's not the whole piece, the whole puzzle. I, w- I would argue that the puzzle is billions and billions of pieces. And, and, and sometimes we get focused on the wrong piece, and, but these are pieces that we need to understand. And today we want to kind of put that third piece into the puzzle so that we have a better picture, knowing it will answer some questions, but chances are it's going to generate some more questions. And, and then we're going to have to keep exploring these other pieces to this puzzle. And so today I want to help us answer some questions, also probably generate some more. And I want to encourage you that if you do have those questions, objections at the end of this day today, then text me, email me, write me, stop me, grab me, and, and let's talk. And, and if not me, then talk 
to a small group leader or talk to a friend, but don't just mumble again, don't just grumble, don't walk away angry. Let's keep walking together and see if we can't figure out this mess we call life and, and see if we can't do that together. And so today we want to be reminded as we begin that, you know, this truth that we heard in the first week that Jesus, who was what John calls the Word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only, who comes from the Father full of grace and truth. And we said in week one, grace and truth, not opposite terms, they're actually complementary, right? Speaking to the truth about God, that he is gracious. And that idea of gracious is bigger than just gracious. It's gracious, it's merciful, it's loving, right? That, that's really what encompasses in that word. And so we get this picture of God as loving, merciful, and gracious, and true. He's never changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And, and then we also learned some things about him in week two. We said, he's not only gracious, but he's just, right? He's just. And that justice doesn't change. You know, and one of the things that he says, in rightly and justly, is that we have all sinned. And we fall short of the glory that is revealed in Jesus, right? He comes from the Father full of grace and truth. And they've seen that we've seen the glory, and we have sinned and fall short of that glory. And so first, week one, we said, well, this is who God is. This is what we learn more about who God is. And week two is more focused about who we are and who God is, how that informs who we are. And this week, we want to ask this question, and that is, how are we supposed to live in light of God's grace, in light of who he is, and in light of who we are, in light of our sin, in light of the fact that we are still sinners, how do we live? How, how does this information about who God is, who we are, inform how we are called to live in this world, in this messy world, with all of these puzzle pieces? How are we supposed to do that? Well, we are called, we believe, as Scripture tells us, to be disciples of Jesus. And we say it like this in our mission statement. We say we, we, we desire to look live and love more like Jesus. Because we believe when we do, lives will be changed, families will be changed, communities will be changed, and eventually the world will be changed. That's what we believe. That's what Scripture teaches us. And, and, and so what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to live into that, I, that understanding that God is gracious, that he is true, that he is just, and we are sinners? How do we walk and live in that? Jesus says this. He says, you must deny yourselves. If you want to be my disciple, if you truly want to look, live, and love more like me, then you need to deny yourself. Deny your deepest held beliefs that you hold on to and follow me. I love what uh, Sam Alberry says about that passage. Sam Alberry is a, a, a man who identifies as same-sex attractive. He's a Christian. He's an apologist. And... and he says, you know, in, in his book, he says, is God anti-gay? I'll answer the question when he says it. He goes, if God's anti-gay, then we're all in trouble. Okay? That's what he says. But he says, people look at him as a same-sex attracted man and said, well, you know, the gospel must be harder for you than it is for everybody else or for those of us that are heterosexual. And he's like, wait, 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 what? He's like, hold on a second. This is what he says. He says, it's the same for all of us, folks. It is the same for every one of us, whoever it is. Straight, gay, queer, bi, trans, it, it doesn't matter. He says, it's the same for every one of us. I am to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him, follow Jesus. Every Christian is called to costly sacrifice. Costly sacrifice, it costs us something. Every Christian is called 
the costly, costly sacrifice, denying yourself, does not mean tweaking your behavior. Right? doesn't mean that. Here and there, right? It's saying no to your deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. To take up a cross is to declare your life, as you have known it, forfeit. He said, because in the end, here's the truth. Your life is not your own, for it has been purchased with a price. And that price was the very Son of God, that God sold his Son into slavery so that we could be free of that bondage of slavery. He denied his rights, his authority, for our sake. And now he calls us as followers, as disciples, to do the same. And at the core of this is this idea that we need to say no to our deepest sense of who we are. It's really a question of identity. See, at the core of our being is this, is this understanding of who I am. And, and, and not, not just who I say that I am, right? But that's how we tend to answer that question, right? Well, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a father, right? I'm a pastor, I'm a Cardinal baseball fan. Those are all things that I say I am, right? But at the core of me, there's something bigger is what Sam is, is pointing to, is something that, that Jesus is pointing to, something that Scripture is pointing to. He's saying... What he's saying to us is that we can identify ourselves as all of these things, but when we try to put something else in that missing piece in the center, that piece that we've been trying to fill with all these other pieces, the only thing that fits in that center piece, in that identity, because there can only be one piece, right? There's only one piece that fits in that piece, and we've been trying to fill that piece with things that are created, things that are temporary, things that are defined by us. And he's saying, no, there's something bigger that goes in the centerpiece that you're missing. But yet we still keep trying to fill that center with our own piece. We keep trying to cut the edges off and make it fit. And it doesn't fit. It never will. But that doesn't keep us from trying. Right? And one of the areas that we as the church have bought into, because we've seen it in our culture around us, and that is this idea that who you are is defined by your sexuality that I am straight, I am gay, I am lesbian, I am transsexual, I am queer, I am exploring. It doesn't matter what you put on it. When we buy into the argument that you are your sexual identity, we're cutting a piece of our own and trying to put it in the middle piece to complete the puzzle. And it doesn't work. Because we cannot fill an eternal hole with something that is temporary something that is flimsy, something that can be taken away from us, something that could be, and, and, and because it can be taken away, because it is temporary, it causes us great angst. Because I've built my whole life around this identity that I've made up for myself, and I know in my heart, if I think about it, this is really precarious. And so it causes me to be be, be stressful, it, it causes me to be stressed, it causes me to be hateful, it causes me to be judgmental, it causes me to be condemning, it causes me to be all these kind of things, and it doesn't allow me to really rest, which that centerpiece ought to allow you to rest. If you fit the vital piece in, you go, <sighs> you know, it's, it's just, 
beautiful. St. Augustine says this. He says, you have made us, meaning God has made us for himself, our God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. He's at the center, that peace that really informs your identity, that lens through which you see everything. It's your identity is, is in him. And Jesus said, or John said today in our text, exactly the same thing. He said, see what great love the Father has given us that we are called children of God. And we are. Or some translations say, and that is who we are. But literally it says, and that, and we are. He would not call us children of God and could not call us children of God if we were not children of God. And Scripture beckons us, and John is telling us that we need to see ourselves, we need to see God, first of all, as this loving, gracious God who has given us our identity. He has lavished his grace and his love on us. While we didn't deserve it, he loved us. He died for us. Not because we were straight, not because of we were good people, but because he loved us. He lavished that love on us. And then he calls us children of God. Not something we've earned, but something he calls us. And he's given us a new identity because he's purchased us. We're no longer our own. And it's through that lens that, that he calls us to not only see him, but to see ourselves. And then through that same lens, to see the world and the people around us. Because it's only through that lens that we will begin to see what Jesus sees. And if we truly want to be his disciples, to look, live, and love more like him, wouldn't it, wouldn't it make sense that we'd want to see what he sees? And so John is saying, Scripture is teaching us that that happens as we understand who we are at our core and, and start living into our own identity, to the identity that has given us, and stop trying to manufacture our own identity and stop trying to, to be your own God and, and, and ignore his rule over your life. When you continue to do that, it's just going to be stressful. It's going to be, it's going to be anger. Your days are going to be filled with that. He said, no, no, no. The core of who you are is this identity that you are a child of God. Now, here's a question from this here that I've heard. I mean, I've had people ask me this question. Okay, I, I get that. But here's my question. Can people who are LGBTQ plus actually be called children of God? Can, can they really be Christian? And, and I love what Tim Keller says and how he answers this question because he was in an interview with someone questioning him about sexuality. And he said, so you're telling me that, that, that if you're gay, you're going to hell? And he's like, no, 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 no. And here's what he says. I love this response. Heterosexuality doesn't get you into heaven, so how in the world could homosexuality send you to hell? He's like, drop the mic, walk away. Think about that. Rebecca McLaughlin, who, who is same-sex attracted female, Christian, writer, married to a man, says in her book, Confronting Christianity, she says, heterosexuality 
is not the goal of the Christian life. It's Jesus. The goal of the Christian life is not heterosexuality. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a person. And his name is Jesus. We are called to follow him. How he lived, how he interacted with people of different different backgrounds, different cultures, different beliefs. How he walked and lived with them. How he showed grace and truth to them. How he did that. We are called to follow him. Not a set of rules. Because while a set of rules can guide us, it cannot tell us in every situation how we are supposed to behave, how we are supposed to live. All you need to do, parents, is look at one child. Just one child. And you think you figured it out today and tomorrow it doesn't work. And you think you figured out this child and then you have a second one. And what you did with this child doesn't work with this one. But we keep trying, and all we do is bring about frustration. Because we forget it's not about a set of rules, it's about a person. And we're called to follow a person, and that's messy. That, that, that's not so simple. It's not just one, two, three, I've got it all figured out. It's not. John goes on to say this. He says, dear friends, now we are children. Of God, And what we will be has not been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I want to point out three things right here that I think are super important for us to understand and be reminded of. We are now children of God. That is who we are now. Not who we will be, but who we are right now. That's how he sees us. That's who he's called us. But here's the second thing. We're not fully who he's created us to be. We are not fully living into that identity completely. One day we will, when Jesus appears again. But right now, we don't even see ourselves clearly. We, we don't even really see ourselves and, and who we are clearly. But he says, one day we will. We'll see what God sees. And then the third thing is, we don't really see God the way he truly is. Right? He says, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is, meaning we don't see him as he is right now. We can't, right? We're clouded by sin. We're, we're, we're imperfect people trying to understand a perfect being. And, we, and the best way we've tried to explain him is a list of rules because we like rules. We like yes and no answers. Give me the formula. Let me do this and put it into practice. And it's not that simple because we're not that simple. And certainly God is not that simple. And we're called to follow a God who's not simple and is personal. And so guess what? It's going to be kind of messy for us. It's going to be kind of complicated. It just is. That's what happens when we're called into a world with other people. You know, I love this painting. It's a Rembrandt. Uh, maybe some of you know it. It's called Christ in the Storm in the Sea of Galilee. And it was painted by Rembrandt in the 1600s. You know, Rembrandt is one of these master painters that, that people have studied their entire life, studied his works. And this is just one of them. And it's, a, it's an amazing picture because it really, it's a painting that just depicts the storm and, and the fear that the disciples must have felt that day on that sea. And you see Jesus down here at the bottom in the boat. And he's sort of pictured, you see, he's kind of got a little halo on his head. You know, 
That's Jesus, right? He's got the beard. He looks like the pictures, right? That's Jesus down here. And all the other disciples are, are doing things, trying to figure out what's happening. And just a couple of them are looking to Jesus, like, you've got to get us out of this. And people have studied this painting to try and understand the message that Rembrandt's trying to paint and what is he trying to say. And, and people have studied this painting their entire lives. And, and experts study Rembrandt's like this their entire life. They want to know his technique. They want to know his method. They want to know his skills. But also what they want to understand is Rembrandt. They want to know the man. And, and they, what they've come to find is that when they study his work, they learn more about him. Right? And, and they would say to you, that there is no insignificant work that Rembrandt has done. If you truly want to know Rembrandt, then there is no insignificant work that he has created because all of his work, all of his work, help us understand who Rembrandt is. I want you to take a moment right now. Seriously, I'm going to ask you to do this. I want you to look around the room at the people around you, to your right, to your left, and front, and back. Right now. I'm not kidding. Look around. And, and look at the people sitting around you. And just, if, and, and don't creep anybody out by staring at them, but just like, <laughs> just kind of look. See, this is something that we need to do every day of our lives. Every day of our lives, because everyone in this room is a masterpiece of the Creator. Ephesians says, we are God's masterpiece. And, and this is just a really small sample size. Right? Because there are billions and billions of masterpieces walking around on this planet that God has created, right, in his image. And he says, you are my masterpiece. But here's what's happened, folks. Sin has come into the world, and it's, it's muddied things up, right? And it's warped things, and it's skewed things that we don't even see ourselves correctly. So how in the world could we see everyone else as they are when we can't even see ourselves? Right? We have a hard enough time seeing the masterpiece in Jesus. And, and, and we don't recognize it when it's lying right next to us in bed or when we look, we're looking at it in the mirror. We can't see it because of all the, the, the sin, the mud in our lives. And it keeps us from seeing the masterpiece. And what we end up doing is we focus on the mud. I love John Burke's book, is The Mud and the Masterpiece. He gives us this metaphor where we focus on everyone's mud. And what we think we can do as Christians is we can come alongside muddy people and clean them off with our muddy hands. Guilty. When what he's calling us to do is to strive every day to see and look around you and see everyone as God sees them to be like Jesus, and to say, Jesus died for every one of these people. He died for me. He died for everyone. Therefore, what's a piece of art worth? What anyone is willing to pay for it. And God says he was willing to pay the life of his son for you, for everyone. And so in God's eyes, you are not only a masterpiece, you are the most valuable thing in his, in his eyes. So much so that he gave his only son for you. And he calls us to be like Jesus and see one another, to see the masterpiece through the mud, trusting there's a masterpiece that he says is in there somewhere. And he calls you and I to get down into the mud, not to clean them off or to hose them off, 
right? But to actually get down in the mud and walk alongside, walk alongside a muddy person with someone who's muddy toward Jesus, to the master restorer, to the one who can really transform not just the way we look on the outside, but our hearts. And, and, and he, as he does that, he changes how we see him, ourselves, and the world around us. And he calls us to do that together, to get down into the mud and, and to walk toward him. See, being a Christian isn't about a set of rules. It's about an orientation. Are you oriented away from Jesus or are you orienting your life toward him? And he calls us to come alongside one another in the church and outside the church and, and, and walk in the mud, resisting the, the, resisting the, the, the right, or we think the right, to critique God's work. But to walk alongside one of these masterpieces and, and, and walk together to Jesus, the one who can restore us both, because we both need that restoring. Right? And when you think about it, how crazy is that? Think about this command that Jesus gave his disciples, these Jewish men who grew up in this little like, circle there in, 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 in Israel, right? Now he says, go into the rest of the world. Go into, all, not go into the real mess in the world where there are all these beliefs, all these cultures, all these practices, and make disciples. And how do you do that? Just like Jesus did with his disciples, walking with them in the mud, teaching them, correcting them, loving them, reminding them over and over again who they are and who he is. But never once did he give up on them. And so he calls us to do the same. And guess what? It's going to be messy. It's going to be messy. It's not going to be simple. It's going to be messy. And he says to us, so therefore, because of what God has done for you, you are to go into this mess as his ambassadors. Right? As though God is making his plea through you. We're not to go forth as his judges. We're to go forth as his ambassadors. Preaching the gospel to the world. That God loves you and he sees you. And he's calling you to himself. That's what our call is. And how crazy is that? He would ask muddy people to do that. That he would ask broken people to, to do that. But that's what he does. But he's not sent us alone. He goes in us. Right? He goes in us. And then he goes on to say this in John. He says, all who have this hope in them, hope in him, that he's with us, that he, he is the master transformer, that, that we are truly the masterpiece that he says we are, that we go forth in that hope in him, not in ourselves. And when we go forth in that hope, we purify ourselves just as he is pure. Remember, he is the only one that's pure. And the only way to purify ourselves is, is, is to hope in him, right? Because he's the only one that will truly purify us. He's the only one that will transform us. He's the only one that will mold us into the image of himself. And so we're called to, to, to go after him. But I know people say, well, what do we do about the sin? What do we do about the sin? What do we do about the sin? And it's like, this is what Jesus says this is through John. He says, dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John says earlier, he says, hey, if you say you're without sin, then you make God out to be a liar. 
So you are a sinner. But what do you do if you sin? Is all hope gone? And he said, no, it's not all hope gone. He said, turn to Jesus. Right? Turn away from this practice and turn to Jesus. And oftentimes we need somebody else to help us see the truth about Jesus. That he's not condemning us. That he's, he's, he's accepting us as the way we are. But he loves us too much to leave us that way. And so he calls us to him. And then he goes on to say this. He says, because he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the one that has set our sins away. He is the one that has covered our sins. Not only ours, but the whole world's. The whole world's. He's not just done that for you and I. He's done that for everyone. Jesus says to every one of us, stop fighting, stop arguing, stop stressing, stop judging, stop condemning, and come to me, and I'll give you rest. See, the assumption is he's like, you're out there trying to define yourself, and that leads you to defending yourself and judging others, and that leads to stress, anger, you name it, lack of rest. And, and, and you stop and come to me. I'll give you rest. I will give you rest. I am your God. I am the one that has recreated you. And it's only in me. It's only when I am at the center of who you are. It's when I fill that centerpiece in your life that you will truly find rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest not just for your bodies, but for your souls. Who here doesn't want some deep soul rest? And to see this fighting and arguing and judging stop. And to see the love of Jesus in the world around us and in our relationships. Who doesn't want to see that? Jesus says, you want to see that? Come to me. And here's what he says. Take my yoke upon you. That picture of a yoke is, is really, I think, a picture of like two oxen. You know, they take this yoke, this wooden thing, and they hold these two oxen together, right? And it's what binds them together, and then they pull the cart together. But see, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. The picture he's given us here is Jesus is down in the dirt underneath one side of that yoke, and it's on his neck. And he's saying to all of us, come down in the dirt with me. Come down into the mud with me, right? And we'll do this together. Come down here and get muddy and dirty with me and, and keep your eyes on me and learn from me. And, and my burden is light and you will find rest for your souls. But you can't stand up there on your high horse <laughs> thinking you're going to find rest. You're just going to find angst and anger and all this other stuff that goes with the life you're trying to define for yourself. No, if you want to find true rest, come down here in the mud with me and we'll do this together. And if you wander off, I'm just going to say, come, come on back down in the mud. I have it. I'm still right here. Come on. Let's go. We do this together. And then when you do that long enough, you start to see things differently because you start to see things as Jesus sees things because he'll direct you. And we'll learn from him. And things will change in our hearts. And as he changes our hearts, lives will be changed communities and families will be changed and eventually the world will be changed how do we the church enter into this conversation how do we the church 
enter into this messy world around us with the grace of Jesus Christ. As muddy people walking alongside muddy people, not trying to clean one another off with muddy hands, but walking side by side with people that maybe don't even agree with us, walking toward the one who can transform our hearts, the only one who is the hope of the world. And he calls us broken, sinful people, children of God, because that is what we are. And he said, lean into that identity. Lean into the identity of the one who made you, created you for. And, and you don't have to do that alone. I'm with you. And when you do, you will find rest in the mess. It will be hard, but you will find rest for your souls. Now, as I said earlier, my prayer is that this would answer some questions, but also that it would create some. And I, I pray that it would create some, that it would continue a dialogue, that this would not drive people away. It would actually pull us closer together to explore the mess, to get down into the dirt with Jesus and, and see what he sees, realizing we're never going to get it. We're, I, I don't have all the answers. None of us do. But collectively, we can together find more answers together than we can apart. We can really come to appreciate God's artwork as we do that together. And so I want to conclude this message with a prayer, a prayer we haven't prayed together for quite some time because we've been trying to limit the time. And if you notice today, we have, we're not really concerned about that today, or I'm not. So it's about <laughs> reminding us who we are. And so we want to recite this prayer today as a reminder of who we are because that very first phrase says, Our Father, which means we're His children. And this prayer reminds us of who we are and a call to remind ourselves daily who we are and what we're called to do. So would you pray this with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.